Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast, episode 133, Raising Films and Recent Films. In today's episode, Dario talks to So Mayer about Raising Films' vital survey into the impact of COVID-19 on those who work in the screen industries. It's great to have So back on the podcast, and as ever, they give us so much food for thought and some points for action in terms of addressing a much-needed area of the film industry. Elsewhere, Neil and Dario do a deep dive into Celine Sciamma's Petite Maman, in place of a planned episode on the film due to some technical difficulties at the recent Cornwall Film Festival screening. We hope you don't mind that it's just Neil and Dario and not the wonderful Cornwall Film Festival audience. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Neil Fox. Neil, really nice to speak to you. And you, buddy. How are you doing? I'm okay. okay. That was a big intake of breath there. Like, yeah, it's, oh God, it's, it's, I mean, I just don't, I'm not going to start going off on a, you know, how hard my life is kind of thing. You know, I've, I'm, I've constantly sort of been reevaluating my relationship to film education, and it's, kind of been at the forefront of my mind to do with my own expectations of what I'm doing and whether what I'm doing works and whether I have to change what I'm doing or my expectations of the students and what their role is <laughs> in that. And I think, you know, it's just constantly, I'm constantly thinking about something's going to have to change, something's going to have to give in terms of going forward because I can't continue like with sort of getting frustrated so much with the way things are right now. And, and you know, we've talked about, I think we're going to do, you know, maybe a little series on this in, in the, uh, after, after the new year is other people are feeling it. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely seems to be within the discipline and within the sector um, and at all levels as well. You know, I don't think it's mm. necessary. You know, I think that colleges and, and everyone's feeling the kind of the pinch of, of right now. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, this comes up in the interview that you did that we're, we're sort of going to kick off with today. This, you know, like it really feels, you know, like a lot of energy was preserved over the past nearly two years in the hope that, okay, let's, let's, let's imagine a new way of doing things. Um, yeah. And it's just, it just hasn't happened. And as, as, as we sort of talk about today, it's, it's, it's actually worse. It's, it's markedly worse in, in higher education. It feels markedly worse in the film industry in terms of just, yeah, just the brutality of, of every days, you know, that, and it, it's weird, isn't it? Cause like, you know, you know, you're saying you don't want to, you don't want to say like, you know, we, we feel very privileged. Um, but it's almost like that, that the privilege of anyone being involved in anything that's not, I don't know, 
economics, <laughs> capitalism, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, 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 is not desired and is being sort of taken down, you know, because I think that it's not just film as well, where I work, when I talk to staff on my research program, everyone is just miserable, <laughs> like just absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. exhausted and miserable. And you're just like, why, yeah. why is that? Why is that? You know, because it doesn't compute with the things that we teach, you know, which are full of complexity and joy. And you're just like, I just yeah, don't yeah, understand yeah. how I just, hard. Um, but it feels like a lot of the students are miserable too. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. the thing. It's kind of like, so if, you, if, if they're miserable and they turn up and they can't, you know, the, and, and I mean, I don't know how much of that is to do with the last two years of school has been disrupted, but it feels like the the disconnect between sort of turning up and saying, oh, great, let's talk about films. And, you know, I just, I just, I just want to sit here, leave me alone. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Is, is, is getting wider. Yeah. I think a lot of it, for what I can sort of glean, is that they all want jobs in the film industry or the TV industry. And they and that everyone's always known that that's ultra competitive. But I think that the disruption to people's journeys in the last couple of years, school, college and university, I think that that it just feels ever more unattainable, even more than it already did, you know, and I just think people are so, they put so much pressure on that goal. And it's almost yeah. like, it's almost like they're coming into university knowing that, that that goal is unachievable, even though they might have been smart enough to think that it was a long shot anyway. Now it's just like, why am I doing this? And on top of that, the theory becomes even more pointless in the, in, in the mind. It's yeah. like, you know, we can't get a job anyway, you know, so we're on a degree where there's practice theory combination, but if we're trying to get a job and there's so much more difficult and we need to do more practice anyway to get a job, like the theory is like, it, it, it becomes kind of redundant. And, it's, and that whole sense of how does, how does the way we think about film feed into making us more curious people, more interesting people, and therefore better filmmakers, hopefully. That sort of equation is just, yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah. It feels like uh, Lord of the Rings, and it's the two towers, you know, where Saruman, <laughs> not, where Saruman is just like, he's cutting down all the trees to make orcs. You know, yeah. like all that, all those beautiful trees are just being absolutely, and they, it's just like a factory of orcs now. And I just feel like, oh, dark, broody, fire yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, but Christopher Lee's there, so there's, it's not all bad. <laughs> no, no. And and you know, to to be honest, there's there's always sort of flashes of light, you know, that that are in there. You know, it's sort of trying to, you know, it's kind of like finding the needle in the haystack or the diamond in the rough. And they do it do it does pop up now and again. And you have those sessions or you have those conversations. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, there is something sort of happening here. But it's just, yeah. it feels like it's more, you have to get through a lot to get to it even more. Yeah. It's it, like the extraction process is much harder, isn't it? You know, it feels yeah. like the end of the gold rush where you, you know, there's not, there's not much out there. But like you say, yeah. when you find the nuggets, it's, um, yeah. it is still really rewarding. So, yeah. And I think that, that definitely feeds into the, the part of today's episode, doesn't it? In terms of like the, the long time, kind of reckoning in certain parts of, of sort of film culture and now it's like okay well it's undeniable and we just need to we need to find a new way of doing things because otherwise it's just it, it it's just unsustainable so yeah that does really tie into um the interview that um i had with so Mayer, which is the subject of the first part of uh, of the podcast today and so is a friend of the podcast we've we've had had them on before um, with the B Ruby Rich episode way way back in the day, 
But um, and Gira Shambo yeah, as well. She, and Gira Shambo as well. Yeah. Shambu, yeah, yeah. And so got in touch with us just to make us aware that they they had a podcast coming out with, with the subject of which is um, a survey that is being done by So, and they are the coordinator of. Um, a group of researchers working within Raising Films doing this survey called How We Work Now, which is about the impact of COVID-19 um, on the culture industries, you know, particularly in the last period of time when, when COVID has been particularly impactful. And it's specifically aimed at looking at um, the impact on carers. And it's carers in the broadest sense of that word in terms of you know, it could be carers of children, but also, you know, carers of adults, older people, um, people with disabilities, any kind, any kind of caring responsibility and how that impacts on people who work in or want to work in the creative industries. Now, this is part of an ongoing um, strand of research, I suppose, that comes out of the, the Raising Films organization. And we link to... Um, that organization on on the show notes it's been going for a while and and you know they they get pockets of funding here and there um to to do this kind of work but i think it's really it's really important and really valuable groundwork that's based on in qualitative and quantitative research which so and i talk about and really sort of points to the experiences people have within the film industry and within the cultural industries more broadly and at a time when you know, this industry is talking to itself and trying to promote this idea that it is changing, you know, and a lot of this is in the, on, on the back of the Me Too era and all of the, all of the kind of conversations, I suppose, for want of a better word, that have come out of that and the realizations that I think have become much more visible. But one of the things I talked to So about is the, um, is the fact that COVID-19 is perhaps has has amplified a lot of the problems and made them more visible, but has made solutions even more difficult, especially coming back from COVID nineteen in the uh, you know in 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 the, in the film industry. Talking about that more specifically, yeah, absolutely, yeah, it was uh, really good to have so back on the pod, and it's a really good conversation. I was really, really, yeah, sort of lots to think about, um, and enjoyed the the way that you you approached it with so. So, should we go to that now? Yeah, let's get into it now. This is me talking to the poet, writer, activist and researcher, So Mayer. So I'm delighted to be joined by poet, writer, speaker all-round general genius of language and meaning and the co-founder of uh, Raising Films, So Mayer. So it's great to see you again. Thanks very much. It's been a while since I've thought about language rather than data, but I'm looking forward to talking about how they come together. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll get back into that uh, very soon. So it's nice to see you in, in real life. And obviously the last couple of years has been really treacherous for, for everyone. But this, this work you've been doing recently with, with Raising Films as an organisation taps into... I think some of the things that have happened in light of COVID, but also amplified a lot of the issues around work, particularly in the creative industries and around caring, you know, in the broadest sense of that word. So maybe you could just start by talking a little bit about raising films and how this research came into sight as something that you wanted to do. Absolutely. And I think Amplified is a great 
and very podcasty word <laughs> yes. for describing the effects of COVID. Uh, raising films didn't stop paying attention to the situation of parents and carers in 2020, unlike the government, which had <laughs> what it has characterized as a, a rude awakening about the uh, effect, particularly for um, women who still remain primary caregivers, uh, leaving the workforce, economic effect for women of COVID and the mental health effect as well, uh, as well as the effect for young people and the effect on cared for people. So Raising Films was formed in 2015 and it was prompted not by a single incident, but a growing sense of frustration with uh, the demands of working in the screen industries, long hours, which we know the union back to is also waging uh, a long campaign against low pay, particularly for freelancers, the increased freelancerization, which has been going on since the 1980s, and a sense that when people were asking the question, but where are all the women? It was very naive because there are material economic factors that determine that as there are for people from other what the equality act calls protected characteristics so people who aren't white people with disabilities and people with low incomes and lower socioeconomic status although class is not actually a protected characteristic interestingly, interestingly enough, enough <laughs> because no one can define it and a, a big shout out yeah. to dr susan omen at the university of sheffield for her work with the arts council on really trying to find granular definitions that will help us understand the class issues in the creative and cultural industries. So Raising Films formed in 2015 around the time of the Gina Davis summit uh, that took place at the London Film Festival and we felt we had a pretty good answer to part of the question of where are all the women? Mm. Not just in senior creative roles but across the screen industries. We started with a combination of a survey and storytelling actually so with interviews and testimonials by people who we knew were finding ways to make it work and then drawing on what they told us we designed our first survey which was very optimistically called making it possible (laughs) and it was the first ever survey of parents and carers working in the UK screen industries and it led to a training course of the same name making it possible which we've run not only all over the country but during lockdown we ran a digital version as well over the last six years we've delivered four surveys I say that slightly hesitantly three surveys and a major piece of research looking at whether equality in the film industries is fit for purpose and I can give you the short answer from Raising Our Game which is no but there are people doing really good work out there and the report highlights both of those Uh, In 2018, we looked specifically at the situation for carers and using Carers UK definition, which is people who care for an adult, um, possibly in addition to their children, which has the delicious sounding name of sandwich carers, but is really more like double exponential super carers. And we realised that while parents may be told, oh, you know, in five years when your kids are at school or 18 years when they go to university, this will all change and you can go back to your your ambitions and your career and your skills. For carers, it's much more unpredictable. The outcome is often much harder to cope with and there's no space for that in the industry whatsoever. And what's happened in the last few years is that this situation has been revealed publicly for everyone. What it means to have caregiving responsibilities has been on the front page of newspapers and particularly if you have a frontline role or work in a long hours job. So COVID basically has made visible something that was invisible but an invisible economy something that that propped up an industry that's as important 
you know, maybe not to the Conservative government, but economically and also sort of culturally how important the, the, the cultural industries are in, in the UK. So this new survey, How We Work Now, would I be right in thinking that you guys had a similar sort of reaction that, that say, for example, myself and Neil did when we did a, an episode last year, what teaching film is going to be like in the pandemic, i.e. that there there may actually be a moment of potential sort of radical rupture, if I can use that phrase, where things could be changed for the better was there a sort of positive driver behind that or was this more of a reaction of we've got to keep doing this research to make these issues more and more real and visible it's a bit of both and also that it's been 19 months now so our funding ran out in february 2020 and we had planned a fundraising year for 2020 which we of course shelved because um other people were more in need of those funds including our community needed to look after their resources and themselves so thinking that we were possibly going to have to shutter we ran a small project called raising our futures which enabled us to publish five provocations by people allied with our community but often in other arts where inclusion has been fought for and implemented more creatively and more joyously as well as rigorously to give an idea of what the screen industries could do when they were coming about what they had to do whether that was in production um, or thinking about Samara Ziadat's piece about exhibition needing to be really conscious of there being far more people who were vulnerable far more people who had long-term disabilities far more people who were economically vulnerable who might be using um, spaces like cinemas so we ran that um, project last year we had a, a Zoom event, our first Zoom event, and produced a beautiful piece of art by Alex Gardner. But then we saw production come back in 2020, and come back, turbo isn't a strong enough word for it. It was the largest number of productions ever happening simultaneously in the UK. And at the same time, we're hearing it's not even behind the scenes anymore. There's a skills shortage. There's not a skills shortage. There's too much production with not enough turnaround. And people had gone back to hiring informally, cutting budgets, cutting shooting time, which means lots of people who have the skills can't work on the productions, don't hear about them because it's informal hiring and they've been doing caring work, or it's not accessible for them to take the job on those terms, including, as we learn in our reports, the screen industries knows nothing about what it means to be in in-work poverty and on universal credit, which affects the number of hours that you can work and how much you can be paid and when. So for, with fly-by-night, short-term tenders, freelancing, informal hiring, get being told you'll be oh you'll be paid when the post-production is finished that is very very hard to handle if you have universal credit if you're on disability benefit if you've got childcare vouchers it, mm. the, the, it's the deferral of the economic outcome absolutely always. and yeah, it's yeah. absolutely you know the in screen industry prerogative as it is every industry to say we didn't create neoliberal austerity we are not making those laws by the government and we all need to come together to challenge that and change that but at the same time all employers and contractors have a duty to pay we started to see that there was going to be a return to a fantasy of normal a kind of nostalgic return to when everything was easy and perfect and the first thing to go out the window when that happens is always the commitment to equality diversity and inclusion because they're seen as costing money and not being cost effective even though and this is a very blunt instrument that we don't necessarily endorse but we know that inclusion is cost effective in all industries yeah, yeah. it seems really interesting how the narrative of the of the pandemic across many kind of sectors in terms of oh things have shut down and, and now things are coming back to normal is very much that things are coming back to normal and that's a positive 
And first of all, they're not coming back to normal. They're actually coming back to worse because of all of the, the kind of outcomes that you've, you've talked about. So that high watermark of, oh, we can change things was very, you know, a very sort of short space of time and space of thought, I think. And then instead of going back to normal, it's coming back to the worst applications of, of all the things that you're talking about, which is really sort of disheartening, I think, in, in, in many ways. So and, uh, I think as in one of the one of the areas that we share, which is academia, we're seeing um, moves to strike for better conditions, not only for staff, but also for students' learning conditions. We will also start to see what's being called the great resignation affecting the film industry, because what the skills shortage shows is that this myth that either you take the job or there's someone coming up behind you who's hungrier and willing to do it for more exploitative conditions is not the case. Um, and what has been happening, this was reported while we were in the middle of um, writing How We Work Now, what's happening in Denmark, where Netflix are pushing for shorter shoot times, um, shorter lead times to go into production. And Denmark previously as a social democracy had quite well established employment law. People are leaving. One thing that the pandemic might have conveyed to people is that you don't have to be grateful for bad work. So in terms of the survey itself, maybe you could just give us a quick overview of, of the mixed methodology, the qualitative and the quantitative, and the sense that it, it seems to me in reading the report and listening to the podcast, which we'll talk about in a second, that sense of it being grounded in data, and but also being able to kind of listen to people's narratives for a sense of community and a sense of voice being there, the, the, the two constituent parts being very important. Well, as our qualitative researcher, Dr. Anja Ostrovska, always likes to say, qualitative research is a rigorous methodology. Not only is storytelling key to what Raising Films does and has always done, whether that's been informal testimonials, interviews, conversations, um, using social media, conversations, IRL. There are also rigorous ways to work with how people share narrative data with you. What we really learned during the survey, and when I say we, that's uh, the research team, which I facilitated and included uh, Dr. Ostrowska, Dr. Jenny Chamaret and Louise Luxton, who's a PhD student at the University of Newcastle and was our quantitative researcher. What we learn is that they're completely interconnected. So when we were designing, writing our demographic questions and our quantitative questions, what we were always thinking about was what do we want people to feel comfortable sharing with us in qualitative? So that people, when they come to narrate their experience of COVID, don't feel that they have to share their protected characteristics with us because we've given an, an opportunity for them to mark that off and it's then anonymized. How do we signal to people that this is a survey that is open to everyone, whatever their income bracket? We're not just designing the survey for middle-class uh, workers who dominate the sure. screen industries yeah, yeah, yeah. and certainly dominate being parents in the screen industries because it is very expensive being a parent and carer. So qualitative questions affect how you design quantitative questions and then the same with the the data it was always a process of going back and forth to say what is the quant telling us about what we're hearing in the qual and we would never report qual without contextualizing it by understanding is this statistically significant for the survey as a whole is it statistically significant for what i had to learn to understand the cohorts that we developed which are the groups that you can identify who have shared experiences so what was really important to us was you can single out 
um, a quotation, a really dramatic quotation from a piece of qualitative analysis. And it sounds really dramatic, but what does it really tell you? And what does it really tell the person reading the research unless you can say, this was the shared experience of people who live outside London. This was the shared experience of people who are parents and carers with a disability. So it really became for us a way to build solidarity. So we started to think that just having quant makes people feel like numbers in a machine. Just having qual, particularly if you're a parent and carer, if you have also inhabit another protected characteristic, if you are going through the Byzantine horrors of the government's benefit system, you feel so alone. It's so individuated, there's no way anyone could understand it or solve it. How could we use that mixed methodology to go back and forth to build points of solidarity? When it comes to the the outcomes, and again, what's interesting about this is there's a level of kind of individual experience and specificity that comes out in the comments, but there is a you know a wealth of crossover in these cohorts as you as you talk about. But I think that there's some sort of key takeaways in terms of the challenges and the complexities of those challenges that people have faced. And we were just talking about this before we came on on Mike. In some ways, the headline is always like financial, you know, the economic loss, as you as you sort of talked about on the podcast that I listened to. But then that how that spreads into kind of like emotional loss, the sense of the psychology of that that leads to kind of levels of isolation and that sense that there is no there is no kind of way out. So then to, to be specific, something like, you know, somebody who is a carer and then the pandemic hits and then they have to homeschool, there's an exacerbation of and a change of what caring responsibilities are. And the COVID has really, again, like I say, it sort of, sort of opened up questions about what pe- the, the economy that's underlying all of these businesses that, that have been affected by, by COVID. I mean, absolutely the one way of stating it is that covid has shown that domestic labor remains the great unacknowledged unaccounted for um underpinning of the capitalist economy you know something that marx and engels both sort of missed um i can't imagine why um and that arguments of wages for housework um while problematic highlight as as an issue that continues to be significant all industries are propped up by unpaid labor and underpaid labor including domestic labor so if you work in an industry which is already visibly depending on unpaid and underpaid labor which the creative and cultural industries do 83 percent of people in the ccis have either worked unpaid or underpaid at some point in their career and then you're also the primary caregiver so carrying Um, the weight, um, however joyous that weight may be, of unpaid uh, labour. It's what uh, was referred to by the American sociologist Ali Hochschild as the second shift. And there's absolutely no support for primary caregivers. And then if you're a carer, that's uh, as, as opposed to or as well as a parent or you're caring for a child who has additional needs, that's even more so the case, added to the fact that the creative and cultural industries are built on the model of the lone genius with no dependents and preferably servants, including one he may be married to. Um, and that remains the primary model for how everything in the industry functions. Long hours, late nights, 
the idea that one can focus on a, you know without other preoccupations on your creative work you know that that terrible phrase of Cyril Colonies about the pram in the hallway continues to be present even if not in how individuals operate in the industry in the way that they are economically framed and it's absolutely unsustainable. Covid has shown us that we call it the cascading crisis and parents knew about this before Covid if you had one change so if you are out if you had to come to set earlier or later if your shooting schedule got changed by a week if you're a um, paid caregiver and there's also I really want to make mention of the fact that the paid childcare sector is an absolute freefall at the moment because the government put no support into this completely essential frontline service just abandoned it and when that goes that is going to roll back a problematic change that has been gained mainly for white women by feminism but parents already knew that any slight shift to your work or to your life didn't just create one change it created a cascade of changes so it's sort of for the want of a nail situation and if you are low income if you're a carer as well as a parent if you have a disability if you're a migrant whose family is in another country that is exponentially more likely to cascade because you don't have any sort of cushion where you can go okay well I can pay for emergency childcare or I can ask a grandparent or a relative so the more precarious you are the more serious and exponential that cascade so the less likely you are to work in a demanding and unsupportive industry and it sounds like that means there's therefore a lot to address and what our quant researcher who as I said came from outside the film industry said is she was surprised by just how reasonable a lot of what people were asking for was so she studies the manifesti of feminist political parties and these are things that have been being asked for for 60 years you know childcare that is affordable flexible available to everyone not a not a postcode lottery not um racist um not only supplied by religious institutions and not dependent on whether you're in work or not because of course if you're a freelancer that can go back and forth to be able to have some flexibility about how and when you work flexible work often means it's only flexible for the employer and not for the the employee, which also pushes a lot of parents and carers into freelancing. We know from our first study, parents and carers are twice as likely to freelance as other workers in the screen industries who are already twice as likely as the, the UK in general. So we're looking at a very precarious population. Um, and among the reasonable requests made by our very generous community was that it's just time to stop training individuals because that makes that, as you say, that creates this individuation. It's your situation. It's your fault. If only you were more confident. If only you brushed up your CV. And this is why we quote um, the late and great Dawn Foster in our study. It's time to lean out. It's time to recognise that keeping a workforce precarious means they don't organise. So we need to skill... Um, screen industries workers that doesn't just mean like brushing up your avid skills that means knowing how to organize that means knowing what the equality act means for you that means knowing how to talk to hr and it also means that we have to train producers from when they're in film school we have to train line producers we have to train anyone who wants to do hr in what the equality act means again it's a blunt tool it definitely needs improving but ignoring it doesn't help anyone so there are actually tools that packed the Producers Guild have a great inclusion tool for their members. We have a tool called Creating Inclusive Productions. You're not doing this from scratch or alone. There are simple steps that stop 
it being individuals' responsibility to make change in their lives, particularly when they're very vulnerable. We're just losing skills and talent. The obvious question I think that needs to be asked in kind of when you see these these surveys and you know listening to you and all of these outcomes I think that are reflective of a lot of the problems that we've we've highlighted it's very tempting to go well there's not really a, a right lot that can be done right now because of the government's attitude to creative industries you know especially independent creative industries is non-existent let's put it that way and then you have employers who will be like well there's nothing we can do because we're close to the breadline and this this kind of thing so what are the key practical outcomes because the survey does actually have some really interesting and important solutions that it puts up on the website that you can read maybe you could talk, talk a little bit about those raising films is described itself since its inception as a solutions oriented organization we've never just wanted to do surveys or studies that are about collecting data a that isn't given directly back to our community because it is theirs after all but b we're not just looking to make a snapshot of people's worst days we don't want to re-traumatize people by asking about when they were vulnerable we want to ask what they know and part of our argument is that the parents and carers in our industry already have the solutions they may be working them on small scales they may be working them in their daily lives as they manage hate the word juggle it's not a circus trick as they manage as they um facilitate as they coordinate uh, multiple schedules admin budgets all of that is skill so we also want to get rid of the word caregiving break and it's also labor all of that it's not just oh yeah i'm good at multitasking kind of thing yeah. absolutely it is skills it is labor it is effective labor it has multiple um dimensions all of which are useful in every industry and may have particular applications in the creative and cultural industries for you know where you're managing people often at times of high stress and high emotion um so emotional literacy combined with multitasking labor this should be something you should be able to report on a cv and take pride in as well so we began the design of the survey from the idea that the solutions are in our community both in the sense that people know what they're doing and that they know what they need so rather than setting out to do a huge consultancy on what employers think we know um, the solutions are there. And, uh, you know, again, going back to what Lou said, they're really reasonable requests. You know, make sure that people who are in the position to hire and contract know what equality law is. I mean, that should just be a legal obligation. Pay people on time. This is a big one. I mean, I know we talked about it before, and it's something that's in the university as well. It's just that sense of somebody can wait like six weeks to get paid. And it's like drives me insane about HR departments. Yeah. Particularly since the breaking of the unions in the 80s, film has become a very, it's really um, been in lo lots of ways. The, the creative and cultural industries have been the tell for the casualization, freelancerization, and subcontracting. So um, rather than it being one big broadcaster that is producing all the TV and radio and therefore having binding equality uh, and employment legislation, everyone going through the same payroll, it's subcontracted out to production companies, which from a maybe new labor point of view, we could say is good for innovation and creativity and create space. The budget is still the same. Um, and in fact has been cut because now no one is being paid benefits 
and people are only paid, you know, for the work they do in freelance terms. But then also fees get deferred because production companies don't pay until, or the broadcast doesn't pay till completion, then the production company can't pay its employees. So everyone can just pass the buck. Beck2 has rate cards. They're almost never referred to and they're almost never built into production. Um, smaller productions say they can't afford them and larger productions avoid them. So they're really, the solutions already pre-exist. That is what's so striking. And also, sorry, just to say, I think as well, it's the depth of these solutions. And again, to echo what you said, it's not rocket science, this stuff. It's not that hard, really. But also, I think that the narrative of a, a really well-known female director directs a big movie, therefore things things are getting better. That's not the narrative that kind of feeds into the absolutely fundamental sort of bedrock of what you're talking about here. You know? I mean, it's always... It's, it's hard not to salute when uh, someone high profile speaks out about having to bring their kids to set or work around pregnancy as, as Greta Gerwig um, did. It all helps, mm. but it doesn't make the It's change. not going to do the, the, the legwork of this. It doesn't, do, it doesn't yeah. do the legwork. So yeah, there is a legwork, to, let's call it that, that <laughs> came out of the, the survey, which is called How to Hire. I mean, it has a very long full title, but it's basically some sets of what we call positive outcomes and practical actions. And so for each positive outcome, which includes, you know, reflecting that your company is inclusive, um, widening the talent pool that you have access to, we give a set of practical actions that enable you to undertake these outcomes which everyone in the screen industry says they want to achieve. They want an inclusive screen industry. They want a sustainable screen industry. They want a screen industry that doesn't have skills gaps. They want a screen industry that is telling powerful stories. That you can't just have it by wanting. And you can't have it by tokenizing, um, as you just said, or by having one high profile figure and then saying, you know, we've done it, or having one high profile failure and saying we're never trying that again. It's about um, cultural changes. And that was a phrase that came up in the survey. That's what people want. They want to see a change in workplace culture that recognizes caregiving that recognizes people's lived experience because for too long that you've been as I said you know pressured out of talking about that if you don't conform to the dominant narrative you're made to feel you'll never be hired again because it's a reputational industry and that also can push you into taking low pay and exploitative work because it's if you don't take it then you're blacklisted from taking other jobs so we've taken the industry's commitment to positive outcomes at face value and given them some practical actions which, none of which we invented and we've got a dropbox folder full of uh, brilliant documents by our ally allies at places like the uncultured and we shall not be removed which is uh with the covid program the disability arts alliance we're all coming towards the same solutions um and in particular we so we just did a second episode of our raising films podcast with kay o'connor um who is part of sign screen industries growth network and she um, made the point that SIGN has EDI at the center of its research and practice, not because it's a duty, not because it's complicated and expensive, not just because it's the morally right thing to do, but because it's exuberant, it's creative, it's exactly everything the film industry as a problem-solving storytelling industry claims, claims that it wants to be. So it should be at the heart of everything that you're doing and the difficulty is just stepping to that and then all of the solutions which are will be different for every production and different for every company unfold from putting that at the center of what you do because that leads you to listen to people listen so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me uh, about this uh, all of the um, details and the report in textual form 
and what's the what's the word for it? There's a, a long form report and a kind of executive summary. That's what I was looking for. Got it. But but also you um, you have this podcast that, that that's coming out. So I just wondered. I listened to the second episode where you're all sort of discussing the the methodology, and as you say, you've got guests to come, so people can listen to that. But I just wondered, you know, we're a podcast show. How how that has helped you in terms of sort of the solidarity of your group of researchers but also being able to articulate that using voices rather than just sort of dry tech it's a really great question and the example of the cinematologist has been really important to us um in terms of thinking about what does it mean for for film education what does it mean for research education to be able to hear this presented in a conversational format especially after a, a year and a half in which we haven't yeah. necessarily been able to be in rooms together we've also got very used to like watching little boxes, boxes made of ticky-dacky yeah. um, <laughs> on our screen. So we knew that we were committed to producing an audio version of the executive summary um, as one way of making it accessible because while PDFs can be read by speech-to-text readers, it's not ideal listening to it in an AI voice and yeah. also there's a lot of uh, data visualizations and we wanted to make sure that they were described correctly um, in their placement because they do add to the narrative. Um, and we recorded the audio summary as a whole team so also you don't have to listen to my voice the whole way through <laughs> there's about 12 different voices in there it's interesting how that has an effect as well doesn't it it's kind of w weird that, i mean it's one of the things that i realized doing podcasting is like you could say the same information but just give different voices different parts of it it has an effect yeah it it makes it feel very communitarian mm. um and we're a community organization and when we committed to recording that and we were thinking about how to launch the report we've previously had uh, live launches on site at various um, venues in London and we were thinking about how that limits who can be in the room and one thing that we heard in our survey um, is that not having to be to come to London to do <laughs> events yes. has been one of the transformational and revelatory aspects for a lot of people working across the screen industries this year to be able to engage in training networking events um, from home without the you know heinous expense of train tickets finding childcare cancelling childcare when you're just a coffee cancels because to them it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. no big deal we wanted to offer something that would reach our community um, where they are but also when they are because you launch a report and people go oh i'm in production or it's half term and i don't have time to read a 64 page um report which i should say does have dolly parton lyrics as the <laughs> section titles so uh there's, there's a, lot, a reason yeah there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of pictures yes that song is nine to five you are correct but we also wanted to bring people into the conversation because for us as researchers and the whole raising films team the founders um our project manager katie swarbrick our comms manager sally hodgson and um pr for the report ollie gotts we all did this through conversation and conversations with allied organizations and we thought wouldn't it be great if we could just get some of this experience of talking about these ideas talking them out how do we do the research what is research um especially when it's related to taking action when it's related to understanding an industry and how do we turn these lovely documents beautifully designed by rachel lipsitz into action which is why it's great that we have speakers from our funders from gatekeeping organizations coming onto the podcast no one is hiding um, you know, no one is saying it's easy. Everyone wants to talk about it. But there is a really strong feeling that there is a grassroots consensus 
um that action needs to be taken and i think a podcast has a has a long tail yeah 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 you know you can engage with it when you want you can download it on your phone from podbean and on it on the app and have it whenever you want it's easy to share with other people you can snippet it and then once you listen to it if you want to go and look at the big research documents you've got it there you can screenshot it whatever you want it's not just another format it's a way of being in community and with that, I should also say a uh, huge thanks to all our funders. Raising Films does not have core funding. We have project funding, and our funders for this project were the BFI awarding funds from the National Lottery, Creative Scotland, Sign uh, Screen Industries Growth Network, the Writers Guild of Great Britain, and Bektu. And we are particularly pleased to have not only two national funders, but also two unions. And that, those are the kind of coalitions that we need um, to do this work. And also, all of them... Um, are doing their own EDI works. So Creative Scotland have just announced this fantastic um, project called Radical Care, which is funding for organisations to develop um, projects with and around caregiving. Sign have EDI at the absolute heart of all of their research, and they've got some exciting new stuff to announce on that. VFI are about to release the third version of the diversity standards, and we get the sense they will be more far-reaching and more hard-hitting, building on um, Clive Nornka's very rigorous research into their impact. And the Writers Guild is still pursuing their class ceiling report, which will be really essential reporting on the economics of class, um, particularly for headline talent, um, headline creatives in the industry. So we know we're not alone. If you're listening to us and you're thinking about how to manage the industry, you're also not alone. All of these sites have resources, conversations. We're hoping to do more. Um, and our email is always open. Uh, if you're a production company that is caregiver inclusive, let us know what you're doing. We'd love to shout about you with the Raising Films ribbon. And if you're looking for help or support, find us on Twitter or Instagram. Um, we're not, we can't give legal advice, but we may be able to point you to someone who can. And we just want to know you to know that you're in our community. Great. You can click through to uh, the Raising Films website for all of that information from our show notes. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for listening. So thanks so much to So for coming to meet me in the uh, Champagne Socialist Idyll of uh, Islington. We had a nice uh, coffee and a chat chat there. What was, what was really funny was um, in the cafe that I go to, it's quite open and spacious and there's a, a, an area at the, at, at the back towards the side that, that's got loads of sort of sofas and it's quite big. And there's lots of mums and families that congregate there on a morning and have their coffee and their chat and stuff like that. And you can probably hear a little bit on the background. There's a couple of times where they went past us and they, they, it, what was funny that they could see that we were recording and they were very sort of apologetic and <laughs> and so sort of said, no, don't worry, we're talking. You're providing the perfect soundtrack here because this is exactly yeah. what we're talking about. So it's quite, yeah. we're quite talking amusing. About that, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so Neil, what, what, what did you make of that? What, what was what was your your comments? Ah, oh, loads to loads to unpack. I think it was it was kind of nice to hear so t- talking about podcasting and why yeah. why sort of, sort of the dissemination of the research through podcasting. You know, they've been very kind about our podcast and very you know, which is which is always nice. You know, particularly from someone that we respect as as much. You know, to know that that, that there's there's something that we're doing which is connecting 
Um, but just, yeah, just that that kind of, again, like obvious iteration that it's such an accessible medium. It's such a it's such a good way to get different voices and accessible language without yep. reducing the you know the complexity of ideas you know we faced this a lot over the last few years you know in terms of like the idea that oh well if you're just talking about it it's not research or it's you know it's not academic mm. or it's not rigorous and it's yeah. like well you know it, that's just it's just nonsense you know and i think seeing more and more of research and policy being disseminated in this way i think is going to have a difference because you know as you sort of alluded to there you know being very general and you know sort of slightly sort of stereotypical but if you've got kids and you're out for a morning you know it's hard to sit down and read something you know mm. as much as you're willing yeah. you know but but when you're preparing food you can listen to a podcast you know like the, it, it is a way of actually getting to people not that necessarily the numbers are going to be huge but it gives people who would otherwise be cut off from that that work really yeah. important access and i think that is invaluable so it's really I think it's really good that that there is a podcast that kind of that, that incorporates that research, um, and and knowing knowing so, it's going to be really fascinating to listen to as well. Yeah, and and just that sense, I think you're right. Where you've got like a report that's sort of sixty, seventy pages, and then you've got an executive summary, and the executive summary can be useful in any kind of report. It gives you a kind of headlines, but then you, you you know you always need the implications of that. And I, I suppose, you know, it's it's interesting doing the other podcast, the podcast studies stuff, and it's talking to people who are so clear about the the limitations, say, of what 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 journalism and what informational media has been like the last sort of 20 years in terms of, you know, like, say, for example, you've got the BBC News, which, which, which will summarize in bullet points, but there is no sort of room to breathe and room to explain or even debate some of the the ideas and, and, and even the solutions, mm. you know, because, you know, it, it, there may be different different approaches to a particular idea and the solutions that that Raising Film or so might have or, uh, you know, and their team might have may be up for debate and there may be questions ar around that. And that's, a, that, that's not something to be sort of uh, worried about. It's something that, that actually is a good thing because it makes you think more and more about the subject. Absolutely. And it, it reminds you that this is not a kind of hermetically sealed piece of work. It's not the answer yeah. and it's not definitive. You know, it is a, re a much needed entry point into the conversation, you know, like and it is a conversation yeah. that needs to be had. So actually having conversations. And I think that's the point that, that So was making there about the relationship between qualitative and quantitative research, you know, that kind of mixed methodology, I think is 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 really interesting and, and and important you know um this idea of the kind of separation of data from narrative um yeah just it's just kind of it's just just it's just meaningless you know because how do you mm. how do you tell the story of the data you know like it's it's and how do you like yeah how do you get into the 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 minutiae of of, of, of the experience i've always found that really you know i've always hated it when sort of people are asked about um you know, politicians are asked, you know, to comment on something. And they say, oh, we can't comment on it. You know, it's an individual case. And it's like, well, that's what data is. You know, mm. it's individual cases. And when you only see it as a kind of collection of numbers and you don't realise that these are individual people with individual experiences and contexts, then, you know, you're doing them a kind of human disservice. So, mm. 
you know, you, you do need, I think you need both to understand actually that what the numbers are telling us is, is only part of it. You know, um, the reality yeah, yeah, is yeah, much yeah. more, much more complex. And the best way to do that is, I think, you know, through conversation. Sure, sure. And I mean, I, I was interested to, to hear your take on, you know, some of the some of the reactions to what has happened in in COVID nineteen that so highlights, particularly, you know, you're you're much more in this position than I am, for example. You know what I mean? In in terms of, you know, obviously you teach, but but you are somebody who is engaging in practice and you are caring, and you know, and and all of that kind of stuff. So, I, what did you make of some of the some of the sort of conversations there? Um, yeah, I mean, it's. It was it was it was nice, you know, to know that 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 is being thought about. You know, I mean, I, I'm I'm really tired. I'm nowhere near as tired as my wife, bless her, who's absolutely exhausted with our little four month old. You know, <laughs> she's doing an amazing job, but it's 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 tiring. And two kids is really tiring. You know, like, mm. and I am very fortunate that I've got a a a good job, and part of that job is 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 is, is engaging with you know, filmmaking um, and, you know, the film education, but also kind of actually the, the making of films and the development of films and stuff like that. But but even so, I just feel like, yeah, because of the way the industry works and has worked, there's the sense that it's just, it's it moves too fast and you are going to get left behind. Like the feeling of being left behind and not being able to do stuff is yeah. really, it's a real, it's a real thing, you know, it's a, and that, that idea of the turbo, it, uh, it certainly feels like since we've gone back, you know, that there's a greater expectation on making stuff all the time. And I don't know why. Like, I just yeah, I just yeah, don't yeah, understand yeah. it. Like, we've got enough stuff. We didn't. It's not like we ran out three months into lockdown and there yeah. was no, nothing. You know what I mean? Like, we there is. It's So that that it, it does. it, And that makes you more tired because you're kind of thinking about, yeah, well, yeah, how yeah. do I how do I stay engaged with it? You know, I mean, mm. readers of our newsletter will know that I'm, I haven't read anything that was you know for for a couple of months now um and podcasting is a great way of staying in touch with stuff because i still have to walk the dog <laughs> you know um so it is yeah it's it feels very gratifying i've you know sort of been involved with raising films for a few years for those reasons really is that i'm i'm not a, i'm not in a bad position compared to a lot of the people who would be engaged with that survey at all but but just the fact that the work is being done makes you feel actually like it's yeah it's it, it's really important that that people understand that you know having a family should not mean that you have no access or you know to to, to making films or being involved in filmmaking like yeah it just seems completely anathema and that and that is a real thing where it's like well you know almost like the the financial industry you know if you've got if you've got a partner and you've got a family this is not for you you have to be single and you have to be yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and you have to be like you know with a disposable income and you're just like or, yeah. or or if you are you, you can't you can't mention any of the stuff you just got to suck it up and it's the same yeah. it's exactly the same at the university i don't think you know i think a lot of industries have gone doing this thing where they've you say, oh, we're going back to the way it was before. No, you haven't gone back to the way it was before. It's, it's worse now because, like, say, for example, you know, at the university, we have to cut and make pre-recorded lectures, which take, you know, to, to, to do a, a short video essay of, say, 10 minutes takes a long time to cut and edit. But it, And you've got to do, like, two lectures a week pre-recorded 
and edit them together. And like our, the ratio of our sort of teaching to preparation time hasn't changed at all. Mm. So, you know, the, the outrage has just gone up and it's kind of like, oh, well, we're, you know, we're back to normal now. And in fact, we need you to do all this other stuff on top because that's now expected in this kind of blended learning environment because of course, you know, it's half COVID, half not. And, you know, we've got to use all of this exciting technology that we've, we've um, you know, we've adopted in the last 18 months. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's all great, but the hours in the day haven't changed. No. Yeah. And it just feels really <laughs> important to be talking about it, you know, and it's, yeah. I think that hopefully our audience understand that this is our point of view and context, but that it is, I think, replicable across a, a wide variety of industries connected to or not connected to film. You know, I think that yeah, there, is, yeah, yeah. there has been a real doubling down and this expectation that, well, what we're saying you're going to do now is 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 fine. And it's like, well, it's, it's absolutely not fine. You know, there's been no yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, so when the Raising Films work came out and so got in touch, it's like, well, of course, we're going to try and talk about this again because the people that are, that want it to go back to normal, which we know means worse, you know, that they want to kind of, they don't want anyone to talk about it. They want it to just get swept under. They want everyone to be too busy. They want everyone to be too tired. They want everyone to be too focused on making, you know, another Netflix show to mm. actually stop and say, well, what, what does this mean? And how do we actually find a way to do it? You know, and it's the same in universities. You know, there's, mm. you know, that famous meme, you know, going around the Batman one, isn't it? Like, I feel really stressed, like, and then getting slapped with a well-being seminar. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Here's yeah, yeah, a well-being yeah, yeah. seminar. And it's like, well, when yeah, can yeah, I go yeah. to this well-being seminar? You know, because you mm. time me up in meetings six hours a day. Yeah. Um, you know, so like it's, I think there is a need to talk about it. And I think that it's encouraging to see the research being done. And yeah, there sort of seem, does seem to be, and sort of so mentioned Clive and Wonka in that, you know, that there, it does seem to be a groundswell of research, which is going to make it impossible mm. to sustain an ignorance and, and this kind of like, well, it has to be made this way. We have to make stuff this way. It's like just the evidence is just stacking up, but that's just absolutely not true. Yeah. Well, this is definitely a conversation that's going to continue. As as I said at the beginning, we're, we're, we have planned um, a series of podcasts, actually, that delve more deeply or that, that are going to delve more deeply with film education and some of the broader themes that it taps into. Um, and that's going to involve people who have contacted us and research that that is coming out so if you're interested in that then uh, watch this space but neil let's move on to talking a little bit about films then let's talk about and some movies yeah. let's do that so we're going to kick off with the uh, celine skiama's petit maman no we are yes um some of you have been listening for what might be about 40 minutes now i'll be thinking when are they going to talk about <laughs> Petite Maman. I thought that was the next episode. Um, yeah. As alluded to in the in my little intro, um, this is not the Petite Maman episode because there isn't one. Um, we had a great time at Cornwall Film Festival. Uh, I was joined by Kingsley Marshall. Um, we did a, our first live foray into off post pandemic, and um, yeah, the audio was not usable. So um, apologies if you were expecting that it was a good chat we had a nice time um but yeah i was a bit rusty and they'd done an amazing job at the Cornwall film festival in terms of setting up this venue with a dcp projector um but the projector was not soundproofed and it just meant that the way the room was configured was 
yeah, it was just it was a nightmare for the sound. Um, so we're going to talk about it now. We've both seen it. Um, yep. And, uh, so we're going to give you our, which is what you tune in for anyway, isn't it? You want to hear what Neil and Dario, two, <laughs> two white English. It's all about us. Think about <laughs> a film about two young girls. Oh, well, a young girl and a yeah. young mother. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's that, that's what people tune in to this podcast for. You know, it's two straight white dudes talking about a feminist filmmaker about you know, a, 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 time travel movies about a young girl meeting her mother in the exactly. past and the present and the future. Indeed, we we are the so, experts on this. I think we are well placed. <laughs> yeah, it's the authority <laughs> that, that you're looking for. Um, so I I, uh, I I texted you with uh, one of my predictions that <laughs> that kind of stated you are going to love this movie neil so uh, maybe you could sort of respond to that did uh, was i right <laughs> yeah i mean you were right i did absolutely love it um it was weird because i was I, I was sat next to kingsley in the screening and the last time i watched a film with kingsley was i sort of i cried a lot and he sort of made a point of saying like you cried a lot at that film like it was pretty loud so what film was that weird. sorry that was Long Way Back, which is um, okay. the, uh, Brett Harvey's new film. It's not out yet. It's going to festivals now. We sort of had a cast and crew screening. Um, but similarly, kind of emotive. For, um, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a crier anyway. Um, but if it's got a, like a mixture of, mixture of things that are directly relevant, then it's it's the floodgates yep. will open. Um, so I was kind of sitting there thinking, like, oh, I can't cry too much because I'll prove Dario right. And I'll prove Kingsley right. So I was kind of like, I was holding it in. And it was hard because I was at points I was like, oh, I just want to... Imagine you sort of rocking backward and forward. Yeah. I mean, I must not cry, you know? <laughs> must not cry. Must not burst that down. Um, so, but no, I, I had I had, I had some tears. Um, I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I think what was... What I loved about it was that... Just... I just kept thinking as I was watching it, what a filmmaker, you know, like there was a part of me as I was going through it and I was completely engaged in this story, but it was such a simple, clear story that I was just kind of constantly drifting off into the, the storytelling. And I just thought like, you know, a modern master, that's what I kept saying to myself, that she's a modern master, like the handling of the concept and the cinematic approach which was so simple, I, I just found it overwhelming. I just, I just, I just, I, I just thought I'm in the hands of someone who is uh, just absolutely at the top of their game, and you know, and what was amazing was obviously like it's a pandemic film in the sense of it was made during the pandemic, and it 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 bears the the logical components of a film that needed to be made in the pandemic. But at no point did I feel like anything was being skimped on or compromised, you know, like it was just, just the, just the, the handling of performance and tone and the shooting of it. I just, I just thought it was magnificent. Yeah. You know, I just thought this is, this is great. Like loved it. And then the, the feeling that they gave me in terms of, you know, my parents and being a parent and that whole mess of emotion there yeah yeah, um, yeah just just stayed with me you know and mm. oftentimes coming home you know when you've been out when i've been out of the cinema and i come home and you know and tessa's asleep particularly or mark you know like it it, it just feels you know there's a I feel, I feel changed you know and i just want to kind of see them and 
and give him a bit of a cuddle. Um, and this time it was just, yeah, it was it was huge, you know, that, that feeling because it was just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my, that, that I gave actually, my, that, that prediction I, I gave actually, part of it was because I thought that the two girls looked a bit like your daughter. So I thought you would just be destroyed. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. Oh, Kingsley said the God. same thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that is a bit, it was that, that I felt that as well. So it's interesting yeah, that other people yeah. saw that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such an enigmatic piece of work in some senses, but it really does reflect, I think elements of the pandemic like you say, in a technical sense, but also I think in the in the the feelings that we all have gone through, like that idea of you know g- um, being distanced from your family and then wanting to reconnect and the difficulty of that. There's a sort of allegory going on there, like the 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 idea of of, of sort of that the in- interiority of the house and then the going out into the countryside and sort of discovering discovering nature and discovering a sense of the self that you didn't have before just realizing oh my god there's a the outside has a presence now that it didn't have before there's some of that in there as well so there's a whole there's a whole sort of different level and layering of what a pandemic film is and could be that is much more psychological and emotional than say you know oh we're going to shoot on zoom because we're all in lockdown and that's just the the level of kind of intellect there and i was lucky enough to watch this at um the new picture houses at finsbury where there was a q a so she was there selinski armor and you know what was funny was um you know you said to me i'll see if you can get see if you can say hello and get an interview and i was like oh yeah i'm gonna definitely gonna try and it's like the level of fangirlness selinski uh, <laughs> armor could rival you know comic con with edgar wright i'm telling you you know she provokes some proper um fandom i think and yeah i, I you know, we've done lots of director Q&As and I can't think of a, a filmmaker who I've listened to in a Q&A, including any, any that I've done, who have been so open about theorizing their own movie. You know what I mean? It's almost as if she's, she's been built to to be able to do that thing that we ask students to do all the time, which is, you know, you've made this film so theorize what you're doing it well if you were going to critique your own movie then what would you say about it what are the influences how you know and it, which is a difficult thing to do and she seems to be ready to do that and you know it's it's through the sort of it, actually i think through this sort of sense that she is a unapologetically um feminist utopian filmmaker she is trying to make films that both critique that that the, the what you know what she sees as as sort of patriarchal society now and and you know in the general sense of how you you might configure that in terms of her films but also what might a feminist aesthetic look like you know and there were so many questions that came out and even some of them that I kind of like mm, she needs to say more about that because because like on the one hand she was sort of talking about not wanting to make films that have violence in them anymore and there was a sort of implicit you know because men make violent movies type type of comment in there and i was like yeah i i I can see that but also there's violence in petit maman in terms of the the mother leaving Mm. that's a kind of violent act if you're a you know a seven eight nine year old kid however old so there's just there's so much in there on that and she was really great at at kind of talking about she talked a lot the idea of sort of scripting and working with children 
and that idea that you know because somebody asked you know did you just let them play and she said no everything that they say is scripted and so we had to but we had to work with them to make sure they, under, they understood what they were saying so that it could it could work so there's this sort, sort of whole sense there's she talked about scenes that were cut because the children didn't really understand what what the point you know there had to be a sort of level of authenticity in the acting for it to be able to be sold in that sense there's just so much to to talk about really it's especially i mean maybe you can comment on talk a little bit about the the sort of time travel device because i just found that fascinating yeah no i think it's um it's interesting sort of your take on on that and it's 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 just one of those films and where it's kind of just awe-inspiring the amount of space she she is able to give the audience in terms of what what might be in that film you know like when when we were having the conversation after the film it was clear that everyone saw so many different things in it you know yeah. um and none of them felt like they weren't there you know and you're like this is a 70 minute film where there's essentially a two-hander with kids and everyone's talking about their own you know like you say their own pandemic response their own you know relationships with their parents relationships with their kids sense of you know like and it was like yeah it's 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 all there you know and i think mm. a lot of it does come because she's a very thoughtful filmmaker and i think that there's a lot of filmmakers who are thoughtful but i like what i said to that kind of the unashamedness i love you know it's like mm. which is very french isn't it and, and you know it's like the the philosophizing of the film form um is a very of course, french of kind course. Of tradition you know but that's yeah it's yeah, so yeah. refreshing to have a filmmaker make this work and want to engage with it and like talk through that stuff and provoke questions and thoughts in the audience through the conversation that they have around the film as much as through the film itself that is exciting for us particularly when the film stands up because i think that there's a, a lot of directors are asked similar kinds of questions and they answer and you're like you haven't thought about this in that so <laughs> you know yeah. and that the, the, but they're lauded as these kind of you know reflect yeah, yeah, cinephile yeah. filmmakers and you're like i don't think you are um yeah. because but also I, she, she 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 was able to do that thing where somebody asks a question and you know directors sometimes if they if if a question is asked and in their heads they're thinking i don't know what you're talking about or there's nothing to do with that in the movie i you know she had the the sort of presence to be able to say well that didn't that didn't really factor for me or occur to me but this did yeah and you know there's a link the link in there and you know, I, th I think sometimes the directors can be overly kind of defensive. They're just kind of like, that's nonsense. Or they can be, try to, try to say something that really, you know, that, that is not, they're not, was not really a factor for them, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she wants to engage in the conversation. She's not being dismissive of ideas because I think she, she, she trades in ideas, you know, there's so mm. many ideas in terms. Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. Yeah, she, I've seen a few interviews and she talked about Back to the Future being a, a big influence <laughs> on the film yeah which yeah, i think yeah. is pretty clear in terms of the indeed the, the device you know so what did you make of that well i i just thought that was conceptually really interesting in the way that it fed into the narrative so rather than the the whole kind of like can we change the future can we change the past type of stuff you know which is the hallmark really of, i think of most time travel movies this was more about how do we get a, a mother and a daughter on the same level so that they can have a conversation. And that level is not as an adult, it's as a kid. So there's this kind of innocence. And you have that sense of that, that idea that the, you could meet your mother or your father 
or a you know a parent when they are at the same age as you are, which is what is it? How old is the kid? Are they ten eight, or something like that? Eight, eight right? Eight, yeah. So it's but but then you 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 smartly find a way within the narrative to be able to sort of um, say that the the mother is not the mother as being old, but just in a child's body. But they're meeting their daughter and they kind of conceptually understand that. And then they can have a conversation. And then later on, the denouement is it, it sort of happens towards the end of the movie where it, it allows a reconciliation or an understanding that is still enigmatic. It's not kind of like, I've, it is, I forgive you, but it's kind of like, I kind of understand why you did this thing. And it, it wasn't, I mean, the whole thing was it wasn't your fault. You know what I mean? Because it, that's the thing that's really enigmatic is that we never, we never truly know what our parents are thinking, you know, as, as children. No, I, I, no idea half, the, you know, really what, what your parents think of you and what, they, what their interiority is. And that's the kind of trauma of, of being a human being, in a sense, that we never get over. And just that thought experiment to be able to say, okay, we're getting rid of the hierarchy of, of the parent-child relationship. So therefore, you can have a conversation on the, on the same level. It's just, a, it's just a fascinating idea, and I thought it was just done beautifully in a technical narrative sense, but then allowed a sort of, a, a, um, allowed a sort of progression in the, in the psychology of the, of the story and the characters that was both poignant and, and also sort of emotionally, emotionally revealing as well. Absolutely, yeah, and I think what was what was really striking was about that, you know, that that meeting of the child and the the parent in at this in the same sort of you know in the same time allowed the sort of the complexities which are within children, you know, to yeah. to emerge in such a natural way, you know, that it's a it's a kind of you know uh, cliche, isn't it? You know that you know kids are smart and they're complicated and they, you know, they understand their feelings and all that, you know, to a degree and all mm. that kind of stuff. And you're just like, you know, but, but to actually, to see what that might look like, you know, when the, that devastating line, when she says, you know, you're not responsible for my sadness, you know, and you feel, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you feel that she knew that as a kid, that she was sad as a kid, you know, like that. Yeah. That was yeah, not yeah. An adult I was sad before you came along. It was yeah. one of the other things you know, as well. Yeah, you know, just like, you know, that is huge, you know, and it's a kind of reminder that kids, can be sad you know people just can be sad you know and that sadness is is a part of the human condition mm. as, you know and it's not necessarily it's not necessarily although it might be exacerbated uh caused by external factors you know mm. like just people are sad you know and yeah. that was but it didn't play up that whole you know the whole kind of like oh you know we're going to start getting to sort of depression and, and no. clinical no. kind of comments on that it was just no. yeah, yeah just yeah it was really yeah and i sort of mentioned to you didn't i like that one of the sadnesses of it was like that those the and i think the word you used earlier was utopian which was really interesting in a sense that those are the you want to have those conversations with your kids you want to have the mm. time and the space to try and find a way to be open and engage and you know and you kind of get glimpses of that but life has to be lived you know Tessa has to get dressed for school and she doesn't want to get dressed for school and it just everything yeah, yeah, else yeah. kind of just becomes <laughs> nightmarish after that so you know the reality is that the, the, the time you know and I just found that device to to give the child and the mother the time to just be together and and explore 
that relationship I just thought was just wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, loved, loved it. I mean, to, to it, 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 it's just it, yeah, as a, as a non-parent and you know someone who had a you know, very difficult relationship, particularly with my father, it, and and that's probably you know if I think about it, one of the reasons why I don't have children. But that 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 sort of sense of the the terror in my head, maybe maybe you know, is more conscious now. I've watched this movie that that was always subconscious. Was you know, I would be so so kind of scared of replicating that kind of that difficulty that mm. me and him had. You know what I mean? And that it sort of plays into that that idea a little bit that you know, it's it, it's such a as you you know as you know much more than me. It's such a inexact science about how to be a parent and then how to cultivate a relationship and then what that's going to become. You can never, you can't legislate for any of, of of that, what might happen and what impacts anything that you do might, might have. And that's, yeah, I mean, that, that's really sort of subtly touched upon, I think throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, you, the, the, you see sort of, you see a thousand possible futures all the time. Yeah. You know, and yeah. the hope is that it's going to be like just this morning, I just dropped Tessa off this morning before we recorded. And there's a girl, a lovely girl on the close, but she's like a year or, year or two older, you know, and mm. we were waiting for the, the door to open in the schoolyard. And every morning when I drop Tessa off, like she gives me a hug and a kiss and she, she runs in, you know, she loves going. But today she wanted to stand with her friend from the close on the, and they were looking through the window and making faces at one of the kids inside, you know, and then when it, when the door opened and it came time, she, and I sort of said, oh, you know, Tessie, and she just did not, she didn't come over. She gave me this smile as if to say, no kiss and cuddle today, I'm with the big kids, you know. <laughs> um, and I was just like, and it was like, she's, I just, it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely, because I was like, is that the start of now that kind of tactile relationship we have? Is that is that the start of it changing, you know, because yeah, she's yeah, aware yeah. of like, not that that's something maybe smaller kids do. And it's just, you just like, that becomes these sort of multiple pathways of, what does what does this mean you know and you get you get hundreds of those a day because she's changing all the time and she's growing up and she's a person and she's got agency mm. and she's got ideas you know and you hope that yeah all you can do is hope that there that, that relationship is is as good as it can be for as long as it can be um but you just you just have no idea you know and seeing seeing and as well i think that the the, the casting of the both the you know the the twins was 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 immaculately done. Yeah. Um, but just the time you spent with that with that that young girl before she meets her mother was just like you just really got a sense of kind of the ocean of complexity within her. You know, yeah. for good and bad. You know, the ability to switch between, you know, like understanding her mother's gone and that there's the, the grief and stuff like that, and then playing with a paddle ball, which is just one of the best scenes. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so funny like, that. Yeah, and it's a switch, you know. And it's like mm. I just thought that was so beautifully rendered that, that that kind of it felt so true and real to both being a kid, you know, and remembering what it was like to be a kid and to be absolutely miserable one minute, and then you know someone's at the gate with a ball and you're like, okay, let's go. I'm, f I'm fine now, you know. Yeah. yeah and yeah, how yeah. that yeah. how that becomes adulthood and how that is sort of navigated in a very very different way, but. The feelings are essentially very similar. Yeah. Mm. Yes, indeed. Well, go and go and see it. I, I kind of as well want to hear an episode of um, projections on on this because there's a psychoanalytic element to the film with the the sort of double and the the uncanniness and the interiority of the house with you know in terms of sort of that metaphor for psychological states. There's a lot of that going on. So yeah. maybe Mary and Sarah might do that one day. Uh, 
you know, yeah, we're definitely through the psych- psychoanalytic lens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, because just like all this, yeah, like you say, this would be a rich, rich text for that. It's a rich yeah. text for so many things. It's, yeah. it's really Indeed. great. Loved it. One Indeed. of my faves this year. Great. Um, cool. Well, that seems like a good time to head over to the bonus and talk about some more recent films. I think we've both been seeing some interesting stuff. Um, oh, that yeah. we wanted to chat about so we're going to head over to the bonus episode now for our patreon subscribers and chat about yeah a whole array of things uh, i'm sure so please join us over there um for that thank you to so for coming on and, and talking to us about about that vital raising films work um thank you to our listeners as ever for supporting you can find us in all the usual places they're on the show notes and yeah, if you do want to hear us keep talking about some movies, then sign up for the Patreon and we'll be joining you very soon. Dario, lovely to talk to you as ever. Uh, yeah, great interview with So. And yeah, lovely to talk to you about all this lovely, weird, complex parenting and family and life stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it's been really good. I think it, it was it interestingly ties in what we've talked about is tied together in a way that we didn't kind of envisage your plan it just kind of seems to have worked so that's that's great and yeah lots of uh kind of much more mainstreamy type film stuff to talk about on the bonus so please come o- over there and and like i say you know it's there's always sort of unedited slightly more controversial on the edge stuff going going on in our little uh um cocktail party after party so uh yeah if you enjoy what we do we really appreciate any any shares on social media, but if you you know, and, and as well, if you go that that extra mile and and you think you'd buy us a coffee for our content, then please sign up. It's only two quid a month, and yeah, there's a bit more uh, stuff going on there, of course. Yeah, we do absolutely appreciate it. So wherever you are in film, uh, industry, education, or just a fan, uh, take care of yourself. It's rough out there. We really appreciate you joining us as ever to talk through and listen through all of this wonderful film stuff um we'll be back soon and until next time thanks for listening this has been the cinematologist podcast